Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you, and uh, I'm glad to be able to fill in for Pastor Andrew this morning. If you've seen the title of my message, uh, I fear that I have two obstacles to overcome in presenting this message. One of them is the elementary nature of the topic, title. I think that it has all the appearances of something we've heard many times before. Obviously, we're a Christian church. We've probably heard about how to deal with sin many, many, many times. It's not a new thing for us. And you might be wondering, why would I choose to preach on that this morning? So I would beg with you that you would bear with me. I think you're going to find something here that could be used, useful to you if this seems a bit elementary to you. Now, the other thing that I think that, I, another obstacle that I think I'm going to have, and that is that uh, the uh, undesirability of the topic. Uh, it, it isn't uh, always that we like to talk about our sin or talk about sin in general. Uh, it's, we, we sort of like to hear the gospel in all its fullness and everything, but, but let's, it, it, I shouldn't say it that way, but I just want to say that often we, we cringe a little bit. Oh, is that the kind of church you are? You know, you just keep on preaching about sin all the time and, and that type of thing. But sometimes sin does have to get talked about. And uh, I think there's going to be something useful in this sermon this morning that uh, I think will help all of us, and I feel the Lord has given me to give to you this morning. Uh, now, before I go any further, however, I need to clarify something. Um, I'm not standing before you this morning like if I've got it all together, like if I have this victorious life thing happening that I don't ever sin. No, I, I, I stand here before you as a man who has spent nearly 70 years struggling with sin. And I think uh, if I were not to tell you that, I would uh, be a hypocrite. So we're in the same condition. We're in the same situation here as we approach this sub subject this morning. Uh, now, uh, the truth is that none of us know exactly what to do about our tendency to sin. Uh, now, one, one way that we, we could react to it is we could devolve into a deep pit of despair because we, oh, I sinned. I sinned again, or it's, it's a say plaguing me, or something like that. Or, on the other side, one could also just sort of easily slip into a world of indifference about it. Like, yeah, I'm saved, I, 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 uh, I've been assured of eternal life, and so I'm just not going to really pay much attention to uh, sin in my life at all. Well, we know that both of those responses, I can assure you, are not biblical, and they are not helpful for us to see it that way. But uh, what exactly, as Christians, uh, what exactly do we do about the fact that sometimes we sin? And sometimes we have habitual sin that plagues us continually. And it seems like we can never really get past it. What do we do about things like that? How do we process that? That is what I want to talk about this morning. But before I go further, I want to pray with, with us today. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we come to you and, and come to your, uh, the Word of God, and uh, we just thank you, Lord, that we can do that, we, that we can, as, 
as God's people, as humans, people who have been uh, introduced to the gospel, possibly are believers at this point, and some of us possibly are searching, don't, not sure about it, and are wondering about the nature of salvation and what it's all about. I just pray in all those categories, I just pray that you would uh, assure us this morning, not cause us unnecessary fear, but give us confidence that you have a wonderful answer to this subject. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last fall, when I went to Belize to teach in a couple of, I'll call them evangelical Mennonite churches in the country of Belize, I had several people during the time of those uh, sessions that I had there that came to me and spoke to me about some lingering doubts that they had about their decision to leave what is referred to down there as the old colony Mennonite church. Many of the Mennonites living in Belize are old colony Mennonites. But some of these people came to me and they had this lingering uh, doubts about leaving the old colony church in favor of this more evangelical church. Um, And what drove them to leave the old colony church was this suffocating message of condemnation. This suffocating message that was central to the religion, uh, the religious life in these communities was rules and more rules and sin upon sin and the fear of, of, of hell that was held over them. Uh, any departure in these communities, anyone who would depart from the community standard, I, I, I'm saying that carefully, uh, not biblical standard, I'm talking about community standard, was considered sinful. Uh, personal choice about clothing, hairstyle, means of transportation, uh, use of birth control, uh, and many others were all potential triggers for the wrath of God. That's the way they were taught in those churches. Nearly every innovation was seen as a concession to modernity and therefore uh, was seen as sinful. I'll just give you one example. You've probably heard it from us over the months already since we've been there. But uh, in these old colony communities, they do not allow their people to drive uh, uh, cars, for sure not cars. Uh, Sometimes uh, vehicles that are used for farming could be half tons or whatever, could be used occasionally, but... Generally speaking, they, cannot, they ride a horse and buggy. And uh, one of the rules they have developed in these communities is that uh, on a horse and buggy, they are able to put rubber on the tires. But in the fields where they drive huge, modern, diesel-driven equipment, they take the rubber tires that they come with, they take them off, and they put on steel tires because it is sinful and worldly for them to have rubber on a, on a piece of equipment that is, is driven by an engine. So this gives you an exact an idea of just how the, 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 the depths and the deprivation under which these people lived when they were in that type of a situation. But now at the evangelical church where they now were attending, uh, they were told that while believer, believers do sin, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is not just something the church had decided was true. That is a, a, almost a direct quote from uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 
And for, for these people coming out of the old colony church, this was the most exciting and liberating message. It, that it, it, it was in such a stark contrast to what they had been taught and lived under in the old church. Still, now as they were in this so-called free environment, some people uh, looked at their new ch- church with some doubt and said, well, maybe, maybe our church is a little bit too free. Maybe it's a little bit too liberating. Maybe uh, I made a mistake. Maybe I need law. Maybe I need all that. But you see, there's two, this, these two groups, and they represent uh, two perspectives on sin. Uh, now, these two churches are very different, as I have described them to you. Uh, and uh, they don't just uh, differ, though, uh, about what uh, sin is, the nature of sin. They also differ about how sin can be dealt with, how it can be delivered uh, from us, and so on, the penalty of which and the debt of which can be dealt with. In the old colony church, all sins must be confessed, they say, and uh, without, any, without any certainty that doing so will be sufficient to gain them a place in heaven. Okay? They do not believe that people can have assurance of salvation. You don't know for sure whether you will make it or not. But people are taught that they were sa- they're as safe from the wrath of God only to the point at which they last confessed all their sins. In other words, any unconfessed sin could be, uh, at any time, the the penalty for unconfessed sin could place them in hell. And hell was certain in these groups uh, for anyone who left the old colony church. Then there wasn't any ambiguity about it. Then you were lost. Well, at the evangelical church, they taught that their, their sins, the past, present, future, had been paid for by the, the shedding of Christ's blood at Calvary. Hell, in their view, was only intended for those who reject God's salvation. Now, these two approaches are not just different, but also they are in direct conflict with each other. And what I should say to you today, this this is not a sermon about beliefs. This is not a sermon about these particular two churches, like if this kind of issue doesn't exist on some form somewhere else. It does. It, 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 ha- it, it is very relevant, I think, to, to Christianity, to religious life that we experience in North America. Um, both positions, uh, they are in conflict with each other. They cannot really be brought together. But both of them have Scripture in support of them. Yes, I, I will readily admit that. The old colony church held strongly to passages like 1 John 1.9 that seems to state that to have our sins forgiven, we must confess our sins. Uh, then the, the evangelical church, they leaned on a text like Christ's last words from the cross in John 19.30 where he says, It is finished. And they understood this to be a reference to the payment, the final, ultimate, completed penalty, uh, payment for the debt, our debt of sin. 
Very different approach, both using uh, Scripture to uh, undermine their beliefs. Now here lies the dilemma. The dilemma is that both positions cannot be correct. Even though they use Scripture to support them, both positions cannot be correct. And we know that according to Romans 3.23 and 6.23, that we all have sinned and that the penalty of sin is death. That we all know to be true. So the question then is for us, how do we deal with our sin? How do we deal with our, this problem that sometimes we sin? Well, I think that the answer that I would give to you this morning is this, that God has a plan. And God has a plan and that I want to describe for you. It is generally agreed that, that in the death of Jesus Christ, God has a special plan to redeem a people who are called by His name. I want to read a few verses here. It's a bit of a, you know, about eight verses from Ephesians 2, which will give you a picture of what I believe God's plan is for us. Chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying about out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works or of efforts on our part. So there is no way, so no one may boast in that. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the plan that God has for fallen mankind. His plan was His Son would provide a means by which He could create a people who were saved from their sin. That the penalty that rightfully should fall upon them was covered, was dealt with, was uh, finished and paid for. And that this would be this group of people that were going to be called by His name and who were going to follow after Him and were going to live for Him and, and, and do, they would be a workmanship of God. We see a passage in, in Revelation that tells us about how that plan worked out. In Revelation 7, verse 9, we read that after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. The people of God. The plan of God. God's plan 
includes the purchase of our faith, our union with Christ, our forgiveness of our sin, past, present, future, our eternal right standing with God as adopted children and as new creatures in Christ. All that was purchased once and for all by Jesus. That is what God intended and achieved when Christ died and stood uh, in in our place or in the place of God's fallen people that needed salvation. That's why Jesus said at the cross, in those final words, He said, it is finished. The plan of God was accomplished. Oh yeah, look at Colossians 2, 13 and 14 where we read this, God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Amen? That is, that is the Gospel. That is the, the essential conviction of our God. In what He wanted to do, this was His plan to accomplish amongst us, and He offers that to you that you receive it by faith. Now the verses that I uh, just read for you are some of the most amazing, amazingly wonderful and comforting passages in all the Bible for describing what became of our debt that we could not ever pay for or deal with ourselves. It says it was cancelled. A debt that was cancelled. It was a debt that was nailed to the cross. You need more evidence? There's a couple of, or three passages I'll give you in Hebrews that make this even more clear. Hebrews 7.27 Christ has no need, like those high priests of the Old Testament law period, to offer sacrifices daily. Since He died, He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. He does not keep on dying for you. He does not keep on going to the cross. You don't become a Christian and unchristian and Christian and unchristian throughout your life every time you sin. Hebrews 9.26 He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And the third one from Hebrews 10.14 For by a single, single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Oh, that's good news. That is the news we need to hear. It's the news that the people in the old colony church needed to hear and never did. This is, this, this is the foundational glory of the achievement of Christ at the cross. Yes, but you say, well, what about still, you know, uh, that sounds pretty clear there in 1 John verse 9. What do we do with that? If the death of Christ achieved the forgiveness of all sins of all God's people for all time, what do these conditional sounding texts like 1 John 1.9 and 1 John 1.7 which I'll also read for you, what do they mean then? I'll read them for you. 
First John verse, uh, chapter 1 John 1.9 says, if. That's what's called a conditional statement. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then, two verses earlier, John says this, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. What do the, both those verses sound like? Do they not sound like unless we, we do something, unless we do it the old colony way and just keep on confessing and confessing and confessing, uh, we are never going to be sure that our sins are actually forgiven. Or unless we walk in the light in other works kind of thing, unless we live the way the community standard is, or whatever we might think even the Bible is telling us is our standard, unless we live that way, uh, then, then the blood of Christ may not apply to us. That's, that's what it sounds like. What do you think? Well, uh, Colossians 2.13 and the passages from Hebrews, uh, they sound like our forgiveness was achieved, completed in the death of Christ. But in 1 John 1.9 and 1.7, that sounds like our forgiveness and our cleansing depends on our confessing those sins and walking in the light. Like, like if the salvation itself is conditional to the confession and the walking. That it, that, these two ideas are not in, in step with each other. So how do we uh, resolve this conflict, what, what appears to be a conflict? I think there's two ways that we can resolve that conflict. The first thing we need to understand, or need to do, is we need to make a distinction between the purchase of our forgiveness, once for all, in the death of Jesus, on the one hand, from the personal possession and enjoyment of that benefit, which comes through faith, on the other hand. There is two different things being talked about here. And we need to uh, understand that. Purchase. We have to understand the purchase that took place. At the death of Jesus, our sins are cancelled. They're nailed to the cross. Debt is fully paid. So payment and securing are accompanied once for all, never to be repeated permanently, infallibly for all God's people when Christ died. There isn't some more work that Jesus has to do when you sin again. But then there's the possession of this wonderful thing that Christ did at Calvary's cross. That is that personal reception, the possession, the enjoyment of that achievement that purchase which securing a forgiveness come to God's people only through faith in Christ. Otherwise, the Bible would be teaching universalism. If it did not require that we put our faith in Christ for what He has done for us, and if we do believe that He died for all our sin, then that would suggest that everybody makes it. 
that there's nobody that isn't going to make it because he died for all sin. But we can't do that because of passages like 1 John and many others. But we do need to make that distinction between the purchasing of our salvation by Christ and us taking possession of what Christ has made available to us. And I say this because of a few other scripture verses that seem to suggest this as well. Like Acts 10.43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I mean, that sounds rather clear. Everyone who believes receives the forgiveness of their sins. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith. They are not justified by following the rules. They are not justified by uh, having what they will, you would sometimes refer to as this victorious living. That is really quite a lie, but we love to sort of put that out there. I don't really want to talk about my sin. I don't really want to ask people to pray for my sin. No, because I'm victorious. That's what everybody's supposed to be, right? Victorious. Yeah, of course. But that's not the basis of your salvation. You can't cling to the fact that nobody knows about your sin, that therefore then you're all right. That's the way it was in the old colony church. They thought that anything that the elders didn't know about that was fine. The second, now, the second way that I believe that we can deal with this conflict is that we, we need to acknowledge that the Bible teaches us that there are traits that God's people have that show they are, in fact, God's people and truly belong to Christ. They are truly born again. They are truly united with Christ. One of those traits that I believe we are given in Scripture has to do with how we deal with ongoing sin in our lives. Now here's the complicating issue. We all readily accept salvation in terms of Christ dying on the cross for us and, and granting us eternal life. But the complicating issue is that even once that transaction has taken place, we sin. Some of us very rarely, I suppose. Others more frequently. But that is still a problem in our life. And that is what John was dealing with in John 1.8 where he says, if you say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So the question becomes this. Well, if you are a child of God and if your sins are truly and fully paid for, covered, canceled, what will your thoughts and actions be toward your ongoing sinning? Right? If on the one hand we believe that it's all been covered by the blood of Christ, it would be rather easy to say, well, it doesn't matter then. It just makes no difference. And yet the Bible would teach that the one who truly understands that Christ's blood has covered their sin and they have been delivered, and through faith they have received this, that such a person is going to be very concerned about the ongoing sin in their life. 
What, what trait will mark you? Here are two biblical answers, both found from Colossians uh, 3. So the question is, if you are a child of God, and if your uh, sins are truly and fully paid for, covered, canceled, what will your thoughts and actions be toward your ongoing sinning? What will the mark be of that trait? Colossians 3.3 tells us, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's an accomplished thing, friends. That's something that has already taken place in the life of the believer. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a description of a wonderful, completed salvation. Uh, we're, in that sense, he, Paul is picturing us already home. But then in verse 5, look what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, why? If, if Paul sees us already in, as, 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 as in heaven, why do we need to put off and put to death sin? Well, that's the two, that is the trait, he says, of those who are the ones who know their destiny. The ones who know their destiny and that their sins have been forgiven, their trait of such people is they put to death the old man and the flesh and the desires. It says here, evil desire. Do you believe that? A lot of us think that sin is only the stuff that we actually do. You know, that, that's, that's wrong or offends God. But Paul, in a number of places, actually refers to our desire, our desires as evil. The desire to steal, the desire to sleep with someone you are not married to. Paul would say those are evil desires. They don't come from somewhere far away. They don't come from some uh, other cause that you might not you feel no responsibility for. No, he would say that those come from within you. The fallen man is still there and is still conjuring up these desires that are evil. And Paul said, uh, uh, here we are told that the one who has truly been born again and a following after God, a trait of such a person is they're going to do battle with that kind of sin. <clears throat> the biblical word Sorry, I'm ahead of myself here. So one trait of those whose sins are fully paid for is that they make war with their sinning. That is a mark of those whose sins are fully canceled. We make war on our sinning. We put them to death. But you cannot do that if you do not admit, that is, that you do not confess that you have sinned. That's why you must. It, it, why Hebrews says you must confess your sin. Now the other trait is, it's not just about how we deal with sin in our lives, but it has to do with confession itself. You must confess your sins to make war with them. If you do not think you have any sins to confess, if you are not confessing, yes, I have sinned. I'm sorry. 
you will not make war with it. So this idea that I started with uh, that, well, some of us might think, let's just sort of be indifferent about it. Let's not think about it too much. That will never defeat sin. Only when we fully acknowledge that it actually exists and it is actually coming, it, it happening and we, have, we do it, at, uh, whether frequently or infrequently, that it comes from the fallen nature that is tempting us and causing us to do it, but we acknowledge and confess that to the Lord, then we can do battle with it. So confessing our sin is the agreement that we, with God that we sin. And it must be fought and killed. If we do not confess this uh, truth, we are living in an illusion, John says. We are lying, he says. We are deceived, and we are calling God a deceiver, and we are not saved. If we have no a desire and no intention of dealing with our sin in our life, you can say all the prayers you want in, in your lifetime, and confessing your faith to God, but you are not saved. You have no conviction of sin. You have no concern about how it affects you and how it affects God. So to be clear, confession of sin is not the basis of our forgiveness. It is one of the traits that show we are truly in Christ, where all our sins are covered by His blood. I want, to, I want to just finish off for the last few minutes here and describe to you, okay, you won't talk about, you've talked about or you've heard me talk about doing war with sin. Doing battle with it. Well, how do we declare war on sin? Exactly how do we do that? First thing is, we name it. We literally name it in prayer to God. Moses instructed Israel in Leviticus 5.5, It shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. It will be particular to what it is that you have fallen to. I want to ask you a question. And no, no, no raised hands. I don't want to hear. No, 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 no. I'm just asking you something you should think about. When is the last time you can remember that you specifically prayed and confessed a particular sin to God. Not the, the Lord's Prayer kind of a confession. No, I'm, I'm talking about where you actually, you're convicted about something and you literally ask God to forgive you for that. That should be a pattern of the Christian life. We name our sin. We acknowledge what it is. David also gives us that transparency before God. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. Well, you can't hide it from him in any event. Many years ago, a man, uh, a young married man, uh, a man I actually had a lot of fondness for, he called me and I could tell he was very distraught and he, came, he said he wanted to talk to me. He needed to talk to me, like right now. I said, sure, come on over. So he came to my office and uh, I could tell he was very, very upset. So upset that he really couldn't even talk. But he knew he needed to be there. And so eventually, after five minutes of silence, I said, uh, I'd like to help you. 
you know, um, is there a way that we can uh, move this forward? Is there something that caused you to call me? Is, is something you, you can trust me? You can talk to me? And, and finally, he did. It took almost half an hour to get out what he had come to talk about. It was a very sad story. He had had uh, immoral relations with his sister-in-law. But he was a believer. And he was overcome with remorse for what he had done. That is what David is talking about. That's what Moses talked about. Name it. Deal with it. Second thing in warring, uh, declaring war on sin is that we need to decide and act against the sin. There lies within you a God-given power to choose. It's a power no force in the universe can prevail against. Satan himself and all of his unholy angels cannot make a person sin when the will has decided not to. We often think of it the other way around. How can we resist? And it's always about the temptation of the evil one. Well, the truth is, as a believer, you have been given the ability to choose not to do evil. The biblical word for this movement of the will away from sin and toward God is repentance. It means a deliberate change of mind and of direction of your life, at least regarding that matter. So we need to actually decide we're going to act and say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. That may not be easy, but you might have to say that many times a day. No, I'm not doing that anymore. And the third thing that we do to declare war on sin is we receive power over the sin. The truth having just said what I said, is true. But another thing that is true here that I need to acknowledge, and that is not, no matter how honestly you confess your sin, and no matter how firmly you decide against your sin, your willpower does not innately possess the quality and the kind of power you need to overcome. So where does this leave you? That leaves you in a desperate need of power from outside of yourself to be poured into your moral fiber of your being. Quite simply, the power you need is this. The love of God for you. Oh, you say, That's, that will never work. It must. It must. When you think of the, the love that it required on, your, uh, on the part of God to send His own Son to earth, and suffer this terrible death and die on the cross for your sin. If that does not in, in, enable you to say, yes, I, I am going to defeat this. I'm going to, with his help, I'm going to do this. He's going to give me that. He will give me the strength. Then there is, I think, some, a real concern you should have in your life. If that doesn't do anything for you. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Or in the uh, uh, NIV, it says, compels us. Because we have concluded this, or as the NIV says, we are convinced of this, that, no, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Christ died for our sin, 
and if we have put our faith in Him, like the, then we are part of that which have died to sin. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. That's where the power will come from. That's where the enablement will come from to be able to battle successfully with the sin in your life. The love of Christ is the power that moves us to cease living for ourselves and to begin living for Him. And Paul says in, in Galatians 5, 5 and 6, We through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And he ends off by saying, Faith energized by God's love. So let's return to the question of my message this morning. What to do about sin? The answer is nothing. There is nothing we can do to cover, cancel, or die to sin. If your sin has not already been canceled by the blood of Christ, there is nothing you can do to change that. But if you place your faith in Jesus and what He has done for you on Calvary's cross, you will receive eternal life. You will receive the assurance of eternal life and a place in heaven with Him. And you reside in the heavenlies, Paul says. So I ask all of us here this morning, do you believe that God has taken all of your sin? set it aside, and nailed it to the cross of Calvary. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then show this by true, uh, to be true by going to war over the sin that is so easily, Hebrews says, entangles us. And God's love will give you the power you need to kill the sin in your life that has already been paid for, canceled, and never to be remembered again. And friends, this will be a lifetime issue for us all. We will continue to have to bring to death things in our life that shouldn't be there. This is not the old colony way, and more the evangelical church way. I don't know, but I, but I know it's not the old colony way. That's for sure. Because I know the Bible offers us much more than that. And I know that he offers you and me this opportunity to be uh, redeemed, part of God's people, and that even when we sin, which we do, it need not destroy us. We need to know more about Jesus. We need to know more about his love for us. To the place where the desirability of that sin lessens in our life. And eventually, I believe, it, it will. We're promised that it will. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to you this day and thank you for the truth. And thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. And uh, pray for our pastor who's out of, uh, not here this morning. Pray a blessing on him and his family. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.